and first graders through the back doors. And uh, let me just remind you that we are in, in chapters 7 and 8, really we're talking about one long event. And you can think of it as, as one long conversation, although it happens over several days. When you begin with chapter 7, really this event that begins with what's called the Feast of Booths, which we talked about last week, this great festival where all these Jewish pilgrims came back to Jerusalem, begins in chapter 7, verse 1, and it really ends... Uh, in the temple and the end of chapter 8. And so that's where we find ourselves in a context. It's also important to to remember that as you read through the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus' primary audience is to Jewish people. Occasionally he would speak to a Samaritan. Occasionally he would speak to a, a Gentile or somebody outside of the Jewish family. But by and large, these were people who were immersed in the history of the Old Testament. So they're very familiar with the Old Testament. So we're not going to be surprised to find that when Jesus is speaking, he's constantly making a reference back to some kind of Old Testament story or Old Testament picture. And then he's appropriating that picture for himself. He, he'd say, because you guys know about your history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's been pointing to me. I have arrived. And we see him doing that over and over again. Much of the history that Jesus draws on comes from the Exodus. The Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt and they crossed over the Red Sea and they wandered in the desert on the way to the promised land. And the reason that Jesus draws on that picture is because that's such a close picture of the gospel itself. Think, think about if you were an Israelite and you're in the desert now, you, you've come out of Egypt and somebody walks up to you and, and, and they say, well, can you give us a testimony about what God has done? What would you say? What would you anticipate that person saying? And, and I think they would say something like this. Well, well, I was enslaved in a, in a foreign land. I, I was under the sentence of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb. And a mediator, in this case Moses, he went out before us. He, he took us across. He helped us cross over from death to life. And, and we entered into this life and we are on our way to the promised land, but we're not, we're not quite there yet. And so for our journey, as we move from death to life, God has provided his word for us. And he's provided the tabernacle for us because we need something to guide us towards the promised land. And we also need the temple because we know we're not going to make it ourselves. You only make it to the promised land by grace alone. And so that that would be a testimony of somebody who is an Israelite. And you can hear it. Can you not? Can you not hear the gospel in that? That would be very similar to what you would say. So Jesus is constantly picking up on these Old Testament images and and using them to point to himself. In chapter 6, as we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus is the real manna from heaven. In chapter 7, this you remember the, the water that came forward from the rock in the desert. And then Jesus says, I'm the living water. Anybody who's eternally thirsty, you're only going to be satisfied if you come to me. And in chapter 8, Jesus says in verse 12 of chapter 8, I am the light of the world. 
And, and if you knew anything about the Feast of the Booze, what, what happened there was there were two great ceremonies. And one of the ceremonies was the lighting of these lamps or these, the lighting of these torches that would happen on one particular day during this week-long celebration. And it always happened after sunset. And what happened was they light these great lamps and they put them on top of the walls in, in, in the temple. And it was said that the, the light was so great it covered all of the darkness in the city. And that's the context that's happening when Jesus says, hey, you see those lights? Those lights that are just lighting up this city? I'm the light of the world. And the Jewish people who are down in the city, can you imagine that there's no electricity? And suddenly they see this light pour forth from the temple. And they're remembering, hey, there was a light that took us through the wilderness. There was this pillar of fire that guided us to the promised land. And Jesus is saying, no, now I'm that light. I'm the way from where you, from, I am the way from where you are right now to the promised land. I'm the light. And so all these pictures have a great deal of significance and, and power as we read through this text. And then beginning in verse 13, to verse 29, Jesus has to authenticate why he can make these great claims. You can imagine being a Jewish person and saying, hold on, you're the bread of heaven. You're the living water. You're the light of the world. I mean, that, that would be offensive. How can somebody make that claim? And so he, he gives his, his authentic record that God has really given him this information. And you can read that. But as we get to verse 30, what we see happening is that people are listening to Jesus teach in the temple and some of the people there say, I believe him. They're listening to a sermon, and somewhere in the midst of the sermon they say, hey, I, I believe. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And then in verse 31, there's a, a turning, and Jesus turns his attention to this particular group of people, these people who are now calling themselves Believers or disciples and he says this if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples So so jesus is looking at this group of people and who are saying they believe in him And he's saying hey, let me tell you how you're going to know you're really a disciple That you're a, a true disciple D.A. Carson in his commentary says jesus lays down exactly what it is that separates phony faith from true faith Fickle discipleship from genuine discipleship. And so this is a this is a very critical issue. There are people who are saying that they believe. And then Jesus looks at those people who say they're believers and he said, OK, this is how you're going to know if you're really a believer. I mean, it's one thing to say it, but there's something else to it. And, and I want to make sure, you know, you're really a believer. You're, you're just not a person who's speaking truth you're actually a person who's living and walking in the truth and so this is a critical message not just for this group but for this group how do you know if you're really a true disciple i mean jesus seems to be indicating hey you know what you could be saying it but you're a phony you could say well i listened i raised my hand i did the prayer I came forward, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer. Yeah, people can do that and not be a believer. And so he's trying to say, hey, you need to focus in. You need to be careful here. Your words have impact. 
And how do you know? And so we see three things here in this text. Very, text, very easy to see. Verse 31, you are a true believer if you abide in my word. Remember back in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, which probably might have been as many as 15,000 because they're just counting the men there. And this group of people, this mass, are are so excited, so enthusiastic about Jesus. And they're saying, hey, we're ready to make him the king. Let's, Let's just go ahead and get him on the throne right now. And this real excited group of people who are all raising their hands saying, I believe I'm a, I'm a follower. Let's make the guy the king. Then the rest of the chapter, Jesus begins to teach. And at the end of the chapter, what happens? Jesus has man, managed to whittle this group of 15,000 down to 12. See, he's been saying, hey, you people who are so excited, let me let me tell you about yourself. Let me tell you about me. Let me give you my word. And and suddenly people are going, oh, oh, I did. Oh, okay. well, I'm out of here. And so they all turn away except for his 12 disciples. And it says uh, in John chapter six, he says, uh, these are hard words who can bear to listen to them. See, saying you believe proves to be pretty difficult when you have to appropriate God's word to your life. But but genuine disciples are going to abide. That's the word that God or John chooses to to hold on to continuously grabbing onto. It's not something you just grab onto and say, yeah, I got it. And then you let it go. It's you're constantly abiding. You're holding on to your you're living according to it. One commentator said, we accept church members based on a profession of faith in Christ, but continuance in the word proves the sincerity. It's the acid test. You know that term? You familiar with that term, acid test? It became popular back in the 1800s when there was the gold rush in California and the, the prospectors would go out and they would dig up a bunch of metal and then they'd come back into town and they'd want to sell this stuff. Well, it all looked like gold. And so they're like, hey, it's all gold. Let's get the gold price out, which today, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? But, you know, some of it was just was, was a base metal. It wasn't really gold. It just looked like gold. It was fool's gold. And so they had to develop some way to say, how can we differentiate between the real gold and the fake gold? And they poured acid on these metals, some of which are gold and some of which were not. And when they poured acid on the gold, it didn't have a reaction to the acid. Because it was true. But when they poured the acid on the fake gold, it, it bubbled up. It changed colors. It, in, in some cases, it even dissolved. And so this commentator is saying that, that whether you're continuing in the word is the, the acid test. And I think it's the acid test here that Jesus is saying. It, it, if you receive the word then you're a true disciple. But but when the word comes upon you, if you bubble up, if you start changing colors, if you dissolve, then you're not really following after Christ. A, a true disciple will receive the word and use the word and live according to the word. But but somebody says, well, I just believe. And then the word comes on them and they, they bubble up. They, they begin to change colors. They begin to dissolve away. 
And Jesus is saying, hey, there are all kinds of people who could rush forward, all kinds of people who could raise their hands and say, I believe. But we need to have this acid test. See, see what can happen. And, and I've seen this happen so many times as you walk through the gospel of John with people. People will say, hey, I believe in Jesus. But but I just want to keep my own convictions. Is that OK? I mean, I believe, but I want to I want to keep my own convictions about money, about sex, about anger, about sacrifice, about forgiveness. I mean, I'm okay with just believing in Jesus, but I've got this way of living that I want to just keep living in this way. I really don't want you to apply God's word to my life. I'd rather just keep my convictions. And what happens is you begin to say, well, you believe. Now, let's apply God's word to your money. Let's apply God's word to your sexual activity. Let's apply God's word to your anger. Let's apply God's word to your forgiveness. And when those people begin to bubble up or dissolve or change colors, they really weren't a true disciple. A true disciple really will receive the word of God. The Apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What gets crucified? I've been crucified with Christ. Well, what what gets crucified? Your old set of convictions. Your old way of thinking. I mean, you have a way of thinking and you think it's right. And then you come to Christ and you have to say, you know what? That's got to go on the cross. I've got to have a new word. I have to have a new direction. I've been enslaved and I've been thinking this is the way to live. Now I need a whole new way. You remember when the, the Israelites came out of Egypt and they were in the they were in the desert and God had given them this word and given them the man and given them the rock and they said, you know what? We miss those onions. We'd like to go back. We love onions. And, and some of you might be that way, saying, I, I still love my old way of thinking. I love my old set of convictions. And, and Jesus is saying, no, there's a new set. There's a new word. You've got to hold on to these things. These are the things that are bringing you to the promised land. Those things are slavery. We need to let go of those things. And the reason you begin to let go of those things, the, the way in which you begin to let go of those things, is you let God's word begin to work in your life. And you have a whole new set of desires. You have a whole new design the psalmist says it this way you know this psalm one that the genuine disciple no longer walks in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of mocker but his delight is on the law of the lord and on that law he meditates day and night. See, he's he's holding now onto something different. He's letting go of the things in the past and he's abiding in God's word. So if you're here this morning and you're calling yourself a believer, well, what's your reaction to God's word in your life? I mean, when when God's word gets poured on your old conviction. Your old habit, your old way of thinking, your old patterns, do you, do you bubble up? Do you change colors? Oh, I can't be. Do you dissolve? 
I'm not saying it's not hard or that it's not difficult, but a genuine disciple is going to say, you know what? That seems so foreign to me, but I've been a foreigner in a foreign land. And beginning to grab hold of these truths, I know it may seem odd to me now, but I'm trusting those things. This truth is bringing me to the promised land. A genuine disciple holds on to the word of God. Second thing, a genuine disciple understands they were previously a slave to sin. Look at this. Jesus looks at these people and says, okay, now I'm I'm looking at this smaller group, these people who just said they believe, and and I'm applying my word. You've got to abide in my word. You've got to know the truth, and you've got to understand that when you abide in my word, that you know the truth, and that truth is going to set you free. And what's the immediate reaction from this group of believers? (laughs) They start bubbling up. What do you mean? You mean I've been set free? I mean... I haven't been set free. I've never been enslaved. You see what's happening immediately, right in this context. Jesus is pouring the word on these people, and he's, he's getting this reaction. They're bubbling up, and they're saying, look, I don't know what you're talking about. We're, we're from the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anybody. How, how will you say that we were a slave? And Jesus responds, Truly, truly. Now, I've said this many times because Jesus says it through through this Gospels. But when Jesus says truly, truly, that Greek word is amen and amen. And if you have old King James versions, you know what it says. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Well, when Jesus is amening his statement before he says the statement. I mean, usually you get the amen at the end. Like, hey, that was a great statement. Amen. But Jesus is giving the amens before he says a statement. So when he's giving the amens before he says a statement, everybody needs to sit up and say, okay, this is the big one. He's trying to tell you amen and amen. Now I'm going to tell you this statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And the main problem with this new group of people who are so-called believers is that they're blind to their own enslavement. The, the worst kind of bondage to be in is the kind of bondage that you don't see that you're in. You're in bondage, but you just don't see it. And you think you're okay, that you're free. And Jesus is addressing this group of religious people, people from the Bible Belt, you might say. People who think that because of their history, because of their long-standing membership in this church, because my grandmother was part of the founding of this church, because I did, then I'm in. I'm okay. And Jesus is looking at those people and saying, man, you're in great danger. If you don't realize you were ever enslaved to sin, then you're never going to really see a need for a Savior. There's a similar similar conversation that you'll recall in Luke chapter 5. Jesus is talking with another religious group. But this religious group, they're not just going back to Abraham. They're just saying, hey, I'm okay. I've done enough good things that I'm not worried about myself. And Jesus looks at them. And I don't know if there's sarcasm here. But he looks at him and he says, you know, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick people. I mean, I just can't help people who are healthy because I've 
help to come call sinners to repentance and you just don't think that you are one. If you don't see that you're sick, you're never going to seek a doctor. If you don't realize you're enslaved, you're never going to be seeking a liberator. And this may seem obvious, but I was talking to a gentleman who had visited Christ Community Church a few years back. And so I caught up with him a little bit later on. And he was a nice guy to talk to. But you, I could tell just when we, when you know, try to, I'm coming, I'm the pastor, I'm going to get to Jesus sometime, right, in the conversation. And he knows that, you know, it's like a missile, it's incoming. I know he's going to land this missile on me at any moment. And I could just tell whenever, whenever I started getting towards Jesus, it just, I could just feel like a wall was, it was just a hardening. He just wasn't interested. And so I, I would meet with him week after week after week. And every time I'd be driving there thinking, okay, Lord, there's, what, 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 what is it about Jesus that I can say that this guy would somehow be able to hear? And, and every week I'd sort of, well, let's take Jesus from this angle. Let's take Jesus from that angle. And just every time, just nothing. And I just I never understood how I couldn't get really any traction on this guy until our very last meeting when I began to bring up Jesus one last time. He said, Paul, I'm not a sinner. See, I would wasted all of my time and all of my energy trying to say there's a great physician to a person who didn't know they were in need of help. A genuine believer understands that they used to be a slave to sin. That it had captured their soul and they were in need of somebody to come in. Somebody to come in from the outside. And you might run into somebody like that, but you might more likely run into somebody who would say, uh, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not enslaved. I mean, isn't that like hyperbole? I mean, Jesus is trying to get your attention, just using some kind of really wild example. But it's not really true. I mean, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm I'm not enslaved to anything. Or I'm not enslaved. I'll tell you who's enslaved. Christians. Man, they're, they're the most locked up people I've ever met. I love John Calvin's words. The greater the mass of vices anyone is buried under, the more fiercely and bombastically do they extol their free will. The greater the mass of vices anyone is buried under, the more and fiercely and bombastically do they extol their free will. And you know this. You don't have to be a Christian to know this. You see somebody who has an addiction. You're married to them. They're your son or daughter. They're your friend. They're your roommate. They're, they're somebody that you're close enough to. And you feel compelled to go and address that issue in their lives. You go with pretty good nervousness, do you not? I mean, when you walk in and you try to address that issue in somebody's life, you're pretty nervous. Because you, you should anticipate the kind of responses are like, hey, I've got it all under control. Hey, I can stop any time. 
You, you don't know, even know what you're talking about. And, and the translation for that is get out of my face. I do not want anyone to come in here and apply the word and show me that I'm really enslaved. Nobody likes to see themselves as enslaved. Nobody. That's not a joyful moment for anybody. But if you don't reach that point, you're never going to look for a savior. And so it's very difficult to approach this with other people. But we know that sin enslaves people. It makes you believe that there's some created thing that's more desirable than Jesus. And then the sin has a blinding effect to think that you're really not enslaved to it. And then, of course, a lot of people would say, I'm not enslaved. But if I could just have. (laughs) I mean, I'm laughing because I know this. I'm familiar with this language. Hey, I'm not enslaved, but if I could just have one more drink or all the drinks I want. I'm not enslaved, but if I could just have one more girl or all the girls I want. I'm not enslaved, but if I could just have one more dollar or all the dollars I want. I'm not enslaved, but if I could just have, and you can fill in the blank, then I would be free. That's all I'm asking for. And Jesus says, that's called slavery. That's called being enslaved. And every disciple, every true disciple, every genuine disciple understands they were previously a slave to sin. And finally, verse 36, every genuine disciple understands that it's the son who sets them free. We live in a country that loves and celebrates freedom. And I'm glad we do. If you were on a boat coming from Europe and you entered the New York City Harbor, what are you looking for? The Statue of Freedom. I want to see the Statue of Liberty. I'm I'm looking for that. I'm looking for a place that I can be free and on the the pedestal. Give me your tired. Give me your poor. Give give me your huddled masses, masses who are what? Yearning to be free. July the 4th is Independence Day. We celebrate it because it's the the time that we say, okay, that marks when we were a self-sovereign. And I think that's great. But if you're a believer, a, a true believer, their birthday is Dependence Day, not Independence Day. See, you don't become free by becoming independent. You become free by becoming dependent on the one who can make you free. And see, there's a myth that goes around in our heads and it goes around in our culture that real freedom is just not having any master. I, I, can, I can be the master. I'm the masters of the universe. What is that? Transformers or whatever that is. I'm the master of my own universe. That's freedom. That's not freedom. That's a lie. That's being enslaved. And you're the master and you're going to enslave yourself. And Jesus comes along to blow that up and says, no, really, real freedom comes from having the right master. 
And again, you don't have to be a Christian to understand this. You, you, you've heard on the news over the last several months this idea that there, there's an Arab Spring over in the Middle East. All these countries are protesting and they want their freedom. And so thousands of people risk their lives and they come out and protest. And many of the countries have overturned these oppressive governments. And at the end, they celebrate and say, we're free. And do they say, now we do not want any government at all. No, they do not say that because they know that would be anarchy. They say we need the right kind of government. And so freedom isn't having no master. It's having the right master, the one who can really set you free. And so we need somebody who, as sinners, can overturn the oppressive forces of death to free us from our sin To give us an entirely new constitution, a a new blueprint by which to live. And a genuine believer, a true follower, understands that only Jesus has the power to set people free. See, he sets them free in in many ways, but two distinct ways. He, He sets you free from condemnation. He has paid for your penalty. You are a sinner. You're in need of a savior. And Jesus has come and saying, yes, there's a penalty to be paid, but I'm paying that down for you. So now, Paul, no condemnation. I'm freeing you from that penalty of sin. Isn't that amazing? I need to remember that pretty frequently. And my guess is you do, too. Because you can say it one time, but this is what happens if you're like me. And I'm afraid in this way you probably are. Uh, a little voice comes in your head. Hey, Paul, I, you know, no one knows this, but, you know, you and I know it. I mean, if people knew this about you. You're not really free from that. You're going to have to pay for that. You have that voice in your head? Yeah. I got to pay it back somehow. When I hear that voice, yeah, it's got to be paid, voice. I can't pay it. It got paid. And now, no condemnation. I am not under any condemnation. Get out of my head, that's what I say. it, It does need to be paid. I recognize that was terrible. It shouldn't have been done. There's a price to be paid. And someone did pay it all the way down. He drained all the evil out of it so that I can stand up and say, yes, I know all these things about me, but they are paid in full. I do not stand condemned in any way. Amen. So he he frees us from the condemnation of sin. And what a freeing thing that is to your mind when you have all these horrible things that are locked up in your mind that are plaguing you. Jesus, by his spirit, comes in and says, you're free. I took that and paid it down. You don't owe one thing on it. And so he frees us from that condemnation. And then by his spirit, he gives us the power now to overcome the sin that still battles within us. See, before I didn't have any power. If I wanted to overcome something, I just had to do it by my own will. And then I was trapped in something else. Pride or any number of other things. And he says, no, no, no. There's a, there's a new power. The Holy Spirit now 
frees you from the power of sin. So there's a real possibility, Paul, now for you to overcome and defeat these sins in your life. The writer of the song Rock of Ages says this, Be of sin the double cure, cleanse us from its guilt and power. The genuine believer is set free by the Son of God. The the genuine believer is freed from sin. And the genuine believer continues to live free by following the words of Jesus. Charles Wesley says it this way in the song that we'll close with in a few minutes. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So if you're here and you're saying, hey, I'm a believer, you're someone in the midst of this series, you're hearing the word and you're saying, Paul, I think I'm I think I'm believing. I'm wanting to raise my hand. I'm one of I want to foster that. But I want you to know that a a genuine disciple gets tested. He gets the acid test. Do you trust the word of God? Do you understand that you used to be enslaved to sin and you could not get out of it yourself? But somebody came down and on your behalf, they set you free. That's what you have to believe. Let's pray together.